Good morning again, Hill family. How are we doing this morning? If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we will be. If you do not bring a Bible with you, you can look in the seat back in front of you and find one there. Members, as you saw, uh, we have a members meeting tonight at 5 p.m., so please make plans to be here tonight. We will look at the year in review and do a little vision planning for the rest of the year. It'll be a good time to fellowship together, but also take care of some business in-house as a family. So I would love to see you here 5 p.m. this evening. Hebrews chapter 6. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5, describing the role of shepherding, Paul speaks of, quote, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, aiding the weak, and being patient with them all. Faithful leadership, we could even say faithful pastoral ministry, is never a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Lovingly and lovingly leading people requires, yes, times of strong admonition. It calls for that. Even warning, but also times of grace-filled encouragement. And in all things, pastoral ministry demands a patience on the part of the leader. And as we've made our way through the last four, uh, through these chapters, through the last couple months we've been in the book of Hebrews, we're up to chapter 6, we've seen the heart of this author, or as I have said, this preacher, it's been evident along the way. His pastoral concern has been undeniable as we've made our way through the book. He understands the, the, the seriousness of the people's situation. We know that he empathizes with their struggles. He cares for them as holy brothers and sisters, chapter 3, verse 1. And his care has been seen through his, his concern for them. Something's wrong. We've, we've noticed that along the way. He's pointed that out. He knows something's wrong, but he also knows that the solution for what's wrong is Jesus. So with detailed precision, the author has sought to carefully present Jesus to this church. He desires for them to know and embrace Jesus as the one who is better than all things. A theme we've come back to over and over again each week. And in doing this, his instruction demanded a balance of serious warning. And yet grace-filled, joy-saturated encouragement for the people whom he loved so dearly. The author of Hebrews understands the balance of pastoral ministry, I think, that Paul spoke of in 1 Thessalonians. And I think nowhere is this balance in the book and this balance of instruction and really the display of the author's heart for his people more evident than in our text this morning. In, chapter, in, in verse, verses 9 to 12 of Hebrews chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. And there we, it's, it's found within what I've referred to, what we've referred to as the author's parenthetical section in the book. If you remember back in, chap, in verse 11 of chapter 5, the author applied what we called a, a purposeful pause to his argument regarding the high priestly ministry of Jesus to address this concern of dull hearing and spiritual immaturity. He knows that stagnation seems to be present within this body. But something more serious than stagnation 
is also, could also be happening as well. Some seem to have fallen back into Judaism. And this was no mere backsliding as we talked about last week. These people who had experienced the, the fullness of Christian community were now openly rejecting Christ and denouncing Him as Savior. In response to this, last week, if you were here, we dealt with one of, which I said, I think, the most severe and difficult warning and hardest passages in the Bible. In other words, admonition was necessary last week. But now, the author's pastoral approach changes this morning. Following, following his severe admonition, this morning our preacher takes aim at this church by way of deep encouragement. He turns his attention to what he calls the better things. Things that accompany true salvation. And things meant to produce confidence in this group of people. And more than that, assurance. Which will take them to the end, he says. So if I could sum it up in a statement, I would say it this way. By embracing proper confidence in Christ, we can possess full assurance of hope and perseverance to the end. So the author wants his group to know that by embracing proper confidence in Christ, they can possess full assurance of hope and by so doing persevere to the end. Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to actually going to begin reading uh, from Hebrews from verse 1 of chapter 6. I'm going to read our text. We preached from last week. I think it's such a necessary connection this week. I want us to hear it in context, and I'm going to read down to verse 12. This is the... Hear God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to, to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those, for, to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Verse 9 is our text this morning. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name, and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you, each one of you, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God, we, the aim of my instruction this morning, I hope, my goal is that we would leave for those of us who know Christ with full assurance of hope till the end. God, that we would not be questioning and second-guessing our spiritual state, but we would be sure and steadfast, not in our own selves, 
but in Christ, confidence in Him. And God, that we would embrace the life of faith with patience, that we might inherit the promises that have been given to us. God, guard our time. Guard me as your preacher. Lord, help us think well about this text and help us to leave with the full assurance of the hope that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As I said last week, my aim last week was to preach from verse what I just read, pretty much. But I couldn't do it all. So we stopped at verse 9. And this morning we're going to have two other headings that would have accompanied the one last week. And they will be this. They will be, the first one will be that we need to em- embrace proper confidence in verses 9 to 10. So embracing proper confidence will be my first heading here in verses 9 to 10. As I said, now we're coming on the heels of what's considered by many as the strongest warning uh, in our Bibles. The author now pivots to assure his hearers they are not among this group of people. Speaking with great confidence, he draws them to himself by way of the first and second person plural again. We've seen him do this multiple times. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to or accompany salvation. Unlike those who have fallen away, the author has confidence in their faith. Referring to them as beloved or loved ones, dear ones, a a very strong term of endearment. Deep affection for, or cherishing of, is what's behind this word. There is a, a deep love for this body is what's being communicated here. And it's being communicated to this same group of people whom he expressed such strong language toward the past few weeks. These beloved people, these people the author cherishes, are those who are said to have dull hearing. And those whom he said need to grow up into Christ. These people whom he calls beloved are those whom he warns if they were to persist in spiritual infancy, are playing, are flirting with spiritual ruin. I think it's really important we note this. We live in a culture where love is distorted to mean the total acceptance of a person, no matter their actions, their decisions, their lifestyles, whatever. It's said to be unloving for a person to confront another or tell them they're wrong. Because in our culture, we're we're said to be the source and the determiner of what's good and true in our own lives. So how dare you judge me? But this sad way of thinking has resulted in a culture of people who are insecure, easily offended, quickly provoked. Go look at Twitter. Go check out the news. And this should have no place in our church, in the church, I should say. See, this term beloved communicates more than just a mere term of endearment. It's also an affirmation regarding their unity as the people of God. He's saying we are beloved by God. We are secured in Christ. We've been forgiven, accepted by God and dwelt by His Holy Spirit and brought into the eternal family of God. Insecurity resulting in quickly taking offense should not characterize the people of God. And this is essential because we are called to truly love one another. We're called to collectively mature together as the body. 
And within committed, true, loving relationship, love oftentimes requires confrontation. We need correction from the Word of God. Every one of us. And that often requires someone else showing us and helping us move forward out of an act of love. So given the stable and solid foundation of our salvation in Christ and therefore our identity in Him, we should be able to receive and give loving encouragement, care, support, as well as loving, caring, compassionate exhortation. And yes, maybe even warning if necessary. Hard conversations will be part and parcel of what it means to love within the body of Christ. Biblical love has room for caring, compassionate, encouragement, as well as truth-telling and grace-filled confrontation. This is what it means to be part of the beloved. And the author displays that here. He's moved straight from strong rebuke and warning to encouragement, beloved. And as the beloved, the author is said to be confident of better things concerning them. We've noted throughout the book of Hebrews this theme of better being central to the book. And it's contrasted here to the sad state of apostasy from last week. Unlike those who fell away, the author is confident of better things, he says, in these people. It's these better things that the author has been presenting and pointing the struggling church to from the opening line of the book. Being uh, Better being the absolute excellencies of Jesus over all things. God's provision in Jesus, His eternal salvation is better. It's been His point. And it produces better things in us. And those better things, the author is confident, are present in these people. He says, the things that belong to salvation. There's a manner of life which accompanies the gospel. There's a manner of life which accompanies our salvation. God's work of grace in us produces God's grace flowing through us. In other words, there is there is both an internal and an external reality that accompanies our salvation. The good news of Jesus is a declaration before it is anything else. The good news of Jesus is an, is an objective reality. It's a declaration about what God has done in Jesus. It's a declaration that we are sinners. And that we do deserve the, the righteous and right judgment of God do our sin. But it's a declaration, it's a message that God has not done that. That He has sent His Son, Jesus, the Supreme One as we saw in chapter 1. The One who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He sent that Son to partake of flesh and blood in every way just like us. To become one of us. And to live a perfect life. And to die a death for, not for His sin, for our sin. He had no sin. He's the divine Son. And that that reality is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus died and that Jesus rose again, demonstrating He has the power over sin and death. That's the gospel. But just knowing that information doesn't make us a Christian. The objective truth of the gospel must be embraced and subjectively experienced through repentance and faith in conversion. There's an internal reality to the gospel. And this results in us having and experience peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, chapter 1. And this results in us experiencing God's love being poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. 
This results in us knowing there is no condemnation for us who walk in the newness of life and the freedom it offers, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Today we stand wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven, made new, secured, and accepted in Him. These better things belong to us as believers. And these better things in us are supposed to produce better things through us. As mentioned in verse 10, look at it. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your, your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Last week we made much of Jesus' parable of the soils in light of really the parable or the illustration that the author of Hebrews gave about the multiple soils and the rain falling on it, one producing a crop and the other not. And in both parables the soil which truly received, in Jesus' parable at least, the seed was the one that produced, produced the crop. In other words, evidence that the seed had taken root was in the crop that it produced. I think a similar point is being made here by the author. In the crop which he sees being produced gives him confidence in the people. And his confidence is said to rest in two things. The faithfulness of God and the fruitfulness of God's people. He says God is not unjust here. God is righteous God does what He says. He is faithful. He righteously rewards those who do what pleases Him. And two things are said to please Him here at least. Our work and our, our labor and our love for the saints. How we live matters, brothers and sisters. Our faithfulness matters, brothers and sisters. We serve, labor for, and we love the saints. God does not forget the righteous and loving acts of His people. We should not let anyone tell us that our righteous living does not matter to God. It does. But we also need to be clear. These acts in no way earn or merit God's salvation. They do, however, testify that we in fact have salvation. They provide evidence of our salvation. Notice it says, look at the language, God does not overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. This love and labor mentioned here is not merely horizontal. It's first and foremost vertical. Their labor and love for the saints testify to their understanding and embracing God's great love for them in the gospel. And we know this because their main concern was not themselves or even the saints they were serving. What does it say? It was for His name, the text says. It was for the name and the glory of God. They did not obey merely out of a sense of duty. They were motivated by love for God and love for His name. One of the primary indicators that one belongs to God is genuine love for God's name and God's glory. And how is love for His name and His glory evidenced in the world? Through a love for God's people. And these saints displayed that. Notice this was ongoing. Verse 10 at the end of it says what? As you still do. These saints were known for this. And they were simply obeying the words of Jesus. John chapter 13. If you're a member of the hill, you should know this verse really well. This is where we get our mark as a disciple of a loving servant. While Jesus is still on his knees after washing the disciples' feet, he tells his disciples and all of us a new command that I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Apostle John further reminds us in 1 John 3.18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. So was this love for one another motivated by the love of God and aimed at the glory of God that was to give them confidence, not in themselves, but in confidence that God's great work of salvation was at work in them? At the core of our sin nature is pride and selfishness. I know something about you that I know about me. You love yourself. We love ourselves. We idolize ourselves. We worship ourselves. That's why Jesus says to become my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means daily denying living for your name and for your glory. And living for His name and His glory in the world. That's what conversion entails. And that's what the life of faith and discipleship looks like. So these are the better things that belong to salvation. Having experienced the sacrificial love of God in Christ, these people sought to live for Him, not themselves. They expressed their love for God and the glory of His great name by sacrificial service to one another. You say, maybe you're saying too much about these people. Well, chapter 10 Turn to chapter 10, verse 32. I actually have it on the screen behind me, so you could just stay here, but this will prove that it's in your Bible, what I put on the screen. Chapter 10, verse 32. Describes these people as those who endured hard strugglings and suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It says they had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Since they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Interpretation, their name and their glory was not the point. They loved and served for the glory of God in Christ. But I don't want you to miss what the author says in verse 35 in response to these actions. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that, you have, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Brothers and sisters, you want to lack confidence in the Christian life? You want to be a believer who remains in a state of insecurity and a lack of, of confidence? A sure way to do that is fixate yourself on yourself. Focus on yourself, your desires, your wants, your preferences, and you will be sure to stunt your growth and stifle any fruit in your life. You want to walk in confidence of better things? Follow the model of the gospel which saves you. Give of yourself. Serve, love, give of yourself for your brothers and sisters. Let the grace of God in you flow through you. We'll read in 1 John. I want to read chapter 4 verses 7 through 12. There will be some overlap here to what we did earlier. What we read earlier in our, in our service. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us, that God sent, sent His only Son... 
paper Bible is always good because you don't lose your place, huh? Anyway, we'll start over. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. That, not that we have loved God, but that, love, that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, he says. There's a confidence the author wants us to have here. He wants us to have a confidence in the work of Christ in us. To grow in the love of God in Christ is to walk in the love of God in Christ. What is that love? It was Jesus' sacrificial laying down of his life for us. Embracing and growing in that love means to walk and live in the same type of love. And the author sees this sacrificial living in these people and he gives them confidence that the better things of the gospel are at work in them. So for us to have confidence in the work of Christ in us is to take part in the life of the gospel. To live, to love, to sacrifice, to labor. Not for ourselves. For the advancement of His name, His glory. Embracing proper confidence so that we can possess full assurance is where the author wants us to go. And that's what I want us to see in verse 11 through 12. This possessing full assurance. In verse 11, the author, he's going to clarify why this is so important. He desires for this group of people and for us To have full assurance of hope, he says. Verse 11, And we desire each of you to show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This we desire is a strong word. Could be translated, I think some of you might see long for in your translation there, yearn or long for it could be translated. The strength of this word again reiterates how the author's severe, the strong language earlier came not from a place of hostility or condemnation, but from a a deep-seated, heartfelt desire for all these saints to experience the fullness of their salvation. He wants them all to show the same eagerness, the same diligence, the same zeal. That's the word as described in verse 10. And his reasoning for this is clear. By doing this, by remaining eager and zealous, we can possess the full assurance of hope till the end. Assurance is essential to the Christian life. I don't know about you, but growing up, the book of Hebrews, I didn't think of the book of Hebrews as a book that was supposed to give someone assurance. Wrongfully, I went to the book of Hebrews as a place where you get kind of, am I really a Christian kind of thing, struggling through it. Nothing could be further from the truth from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is meant to be a a fountain of assurance that we drink from. The author wants to provide the struggling church with great assurance of salvation. In a world of uncertainty, he writes to present Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. We'll see next week. But this assurance comes not by passivity or inactivity. That's what he saw amongst them. That's what he's worried about. And their inactivity, their passivity, their dull hearing can produce a lack of assurance 
and our assurance demands activity, but it's bound up with hope. We are to live in full assurance of the things we hope for. Now, hope is one of those hard-to-define words. We probably use, we do use a lot in church, but probably don't think enough about. If you'll notice in this section, our three great Christian words are here. You'll find faith, hope, and love in this section. But we often use the word hope with like fingers crossed, right? I hope, I was, I was going to say, I was going to say this. I'm a Braves fan. I was going to say, I hope the Braves win the World Series. But that's a, that was a different kind of hope now. No. I hope the Padres win the World Series. <laughs> See, in this way, hope is applied to things we are not sure will actually happen, but we hope they will. That's not the way the Bible speaks of hope at all. When the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks in certain terms. In terms of sure deliverance. Hope is tied to God's promises which are as sure as God is. In this way, Christian hope is no mere slogan. But as one author, I love the way he says it. Hope is as real as the tomb is empty. Hope is confident expectation of glorious things to come. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's our hope. And embracing this hope keeps us from being sluggish, the author says. Now, this is the same word which began this parenthetical section that we've been talking about. It's translated there, dull hearing. I I referenced this verse back then. So this sluggish or dull hearing is what's a reference here again. If If we attempt to live our lives, our Christian lives, by way of finger-crossing hope, then we will not remain diligent. We will most certainly be sluggish. Our hearing will become lazy, dull, lethargic. Full assurance of hope is the solution to a sluggish, lethargic hearing in Christian living. If you're struggling with lethargic, sluggish hearing, I want you to hear it today. Your solution is hope. I, uh, this week we had someone in our sanctuary working on uh, some stuff on our, our fan and our ceiling here. And by God's providence, the lift that we had to get a big forklift for them to go in and to work on the ceiling. And by God's providence, I didn't see it at the time, the lift broke. So we had to be here three times this week. Um, and this one gentleman who was the mechanic to work on the lift, he came a couple times and we got to spend about an hour the last day he was here together, just me and him. And you got a mechanic here, he can't leave. I'm going to ask him about his faith, right? He has to, let's ask him, do you go to church? And he said, I'm a Mormon. And I said, okay, I, I just asked you, did you go to church, you know? So we went on to talk. If you've ever had an interaction with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, we we went on to talk in language similar to Christianity, but obviously not the same. He has a totally different concept of the person and work of Jesus. And I asked him this. We, we pushed back and forth, and we talked around. It was a very charitable conversation. I just asked him questions, and I said, 
And I want to ask you, if you get in your truck and you leave here and you die today, you get in a car crash, do you know you'll go to heaven? His answer, I hope so. Fingers crossed, hope is what he had. And the reason for that is because he has a different understanding of who Jesus is. And because he has a different understanding of who Jesus is, he has a different understanding of what Jesus has done. Jesus is a good example, as he said, that we're to follow. And hopefully, if my life lines up to Jesus enough, God will give me access to his kingdom. To which I told him, I think the Bible says, you will never line up to the life of Jesus enough. Brothers, we don't have that kind of hope. And this is what the author of Hebrews has been laying out for us. He began in chapter 1, verse 1, with what? Who Jesus is. That He is the Son, the Supreme Son. That He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He holds the universe by the word of His power. And then He said what? He, after making purifications for sins, He sat down. Because of who Jesus is, we have great hope in what He has done for us. If you're here this morning and you're wondering about what Christianity is, it's not a wishful hope that things will work out for us. It's a confident assurance that God has worked it out for us. That God has come. That God has taken upon human flesh. That He lived the life that you should have lived and you didn't. And He died upon the cross, the death we deserve. He accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And He didn't stay in the ground. He rose again saying, in His resurrection, that I have the power over life and death. And He offers it to us by hope, by grace, through faith. And we stand today not with fingers crossed as Christians saying, I hope it works out for me. We stand knowing that there is an unshakable kingdom that is ours now, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. We live from that hope, not towards a hope. This is the message of the gospel, brothers and sisters. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping in? Is it going to pan out for you? You're not going to live the Christian life truly, faithfully. You won't persevere in faithfulness apart from a true assurance of hope. Author of Hebrews, as I said in 12, says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, how do we take hold of this hope? How do we guard our hearts from becoming sluggish? Well, the text tells us here. It says, By becoming imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Nothing could be further from dull and sluggish hearing than faith and patience. Look, the pairing of faith and patience is so important. And it's so, so biblical. And these two words are going to lead us into our text next week concerning this figure named Abraham, whom the Bible refers to as a man of faith. Abraham is presented as having great faith. He's an example we're to follow by faith. But we know something else about Abraham. Man, he had some patience. 
The two things that cannot be separated, biblically speaking, are patience and faith. And you'd be surprised, even this week as I started looking through the Bible, how often you're going to find these two words together. They're inseparable in our Bibles. And brothers and sisters, we are impatient people. We live in an impatient culture. We like quick solutions. We consume fast food. We desire and prioritize immediate solutions over long-term labor. It's not how faith works. The life of faith in the Bible demands patience. It calls for endurance. Like if you're tempted to think slow speaks to unimportance, or that slow does not mean fruitfulness, I want you to consider the biblical pattern. God calls Noah to work for years before the flood took place. God gave Abraham a promise which took decades to fulfill. Consider the years Hannah prayed for a child. How long and what all Ruth went through before she received a husband. God, God's promise of deliverance for the Israelites in exile took generations, took decades to come to pass. The coming of Jesus into the world took centuries and even when Jesus came, it took 30 years before his public ministry began. Paul spent years in the desert in preparation following his conversion. Christian faith and patience cannot be separated in the Bible. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 25, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes or what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, what? We wait for it with patience. James tells us, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He gives us an analogy, one that's found often in the Bible. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The life of faith is not a sprint, brothers and sisters. The life of faith demands endurance. And the life of faith often, often, often demands going through difficult things. Things we don't want to go through. But it's through those things that we don't want to go through where what? God shapes and molds our faith. He strips us of our selfishness. And He builds us up with Him. God is not in a hurry. We need to hear that again. God is not in a hurry, brothers and sisters. We get anxious about stuff. God never does. The world is moving at the perfect pace of our God right now. He's not upset. He's not tottering or teetering. He's not anxious about anything. We are to possess the assurance of our hope, the author says. This requires faith and patience. There is no microwave maturity in the Christian life. what the author is pointing us to here. It's by faith and by patience we inherit the promises. And don't miss what's being said here. The author is tying us back to the wilderness generation. He's tying us back to the wilderness generation that we've looked at the, pri the previous chapters. Some endured. Some with patience and with faith endured and entered. Many did not. Hebrews chapter 11 is a whole, our whole chapter on faith. 
will lay this out for us. So I want to give us a word of caution this morning. If you're a person who tends to chase high experience with God over embracing the day in, day out, simple life of Christian living, you need to be careful. I'm not saying God doesn't give us high experiences. But the normal pattern in the Bible is simple, slow growth. The life of faith is a life of faithful, patient living in light of the hope which awaits us. Look, I, I, I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. Um, but how much easier is it to wait when you know what you're waiting for is amazing, right? When we're waiting for something that, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty good. We just want to get through it and rush through it. But we have to wait. What gives us the, the ability to wait and to endure the, the moment of waiting and the difficulty and the pain and all that's going on is because we know what we're waiting for is what we need, is the fulfillment of what we're after. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. This is what the author is pointing us to. We're to wait, endure with patience because of the hope that awaits us. Because of the promises that have been given to us. We are to possess confidence in Christ's work in us which should cause His work to flow through us by serving and loving one another. We remain diligent, zealous, eager in this way because that provides us assurance of our hope and enables us to wait, enables us by faith and patience to inherit the promises of the gospel. We're going to sing a, a song in just a moment. I'm sure you know. Uh, the song is, It Is Well With My Soul. We know this song. There's a few lines here I want to read to you first before we sing it. As we think about what does it look like to, to, to patiently live by faith. Because as you and I know, difficulty and hardship is always in front of us or in our lap in this life. But we, we press on by faith with patience. If you don't know the story of this author, go look it up. Go look up the story of this song. I'm not going to go through it here, but difficult, dark trials made this or ahead of this man's life. He says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What a line. What is our blessed assurance? It's Christ. It's the assurance of his unshakable kingdom. He says, let that control me, hold me, that Christ has regarded my helpless state and has shed his own blood for my soul. That should control us, Christian. And he says, not it will be well. In the midst of deep pain, losing his multiple of his children, he doesn't say it will be well. He says, it is well. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole. Every bit of it, all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is that what we know to be true in the gospel will come to final fruition for us in the end.
The Lord hastes the day when my face shall be sight. Clouds roll back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, right now, it is well with my soul. So, by way of encouragement this morning, I want to offer you the same encouragement that this the writer of Hebrews offers these people. He wants us to have assurance of our hope set before us. That the love of God in Christ would so captivate us that we would live for Him. We would walk in that daily. And that we would know the hope to which we are called. And that that hope help us, would enable us to live by faith with patience until that day. Let's pray, and then let's sing. And I want you to own these words this morning and sing them as we sing together as a church. Father, it's in the name of your Son we come. We come to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that those here today, that if anyone walked in here thinking Christianity was a finger-crossing type of hope, they would hear today clearly that is not the gospel. The gospel is a declaration about something that has happened, that God has done something, and that we can receive the fullness of that by embracing it through repentance and faith, by embracing Christ. God, I Pray for us as a body that you would continue to lean us into one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to be diligent, to be earnest, to be zealous, to live out the life of the gospel that has saved us so that we would have a sure foundation of Christ to stand on. And that God, that we would revel in the hope that we have in Christ and walk and embrace the day in, day out journey of faith with patience recognizing that we can wait. Oh, we will wait because we know what we're waiting for. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom.